You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. Mid to late September has seen extraordinary reactionary mayhem in Melbourne. A union office smashed, anti-vaccination chants ringing through city streets while a health service is forced to close from abuse, the biggest city bridge taken over by thousands, Donald Trump flags flown, Australian anthems sung, the war memorial occupied and militarised police unleashed. It's been a whirlwind. To help us make sense of these events, we hear from longtime anti-fascist unionist writer, Rente Woman, and Greens candidate, Celeste Little. We also hear more broadly about the left and the need to be critical of policing, failures of the state's responses to the pandemic, hardening community responses, and where to from here. A note for listeners, the CFMEU stands for the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime and Energy Union, also known as the CFMMEU. First, I asked Celeste to introduce herself. So I'm Celeste Little. I'm an Orange woman who's um, traditional land uh, central Australia, um, around Alice Springs and then east and southeast of there. I'm also a union organiser, uh, um, an opinion writer and a social commentator and, yeah, currently a Greens candidate. Awesome. Thanks so much, Celeste, for coming on. In the week of the 20th of September, we saw anti-vaccination, anti-lockdown and far-right forces mobilise. We saw them exploit a wedge over the Andrews government's sudden introduction of mandatory vaccination policy for construction, following late rank-and-file protests against the closure of tea rooms on the previous Friday. We saw a reactionary crowd against, against the CMFU office, which was smashed on that Monday after, in a crowd that included some union members, but many non-union construction workers, small business bosses, anti-lockdown forces and far-right agitators, and there's some overlaps in those groups. And through the week we saw, on Tuesday, mobilisations disrupting the Westgate Bridge, to on the Wednesday, the Shrine of Remembrance being taken over, to smaller actions ongoing. Notably, Victoria Police's responses become more and more repressive and militarised as the, as the week proceeded. As a long-time anti-fascist and unionist, were you surprised by the events of the previous week? Yeah, absolutely I was. It, it's almost like a perfect storm of activity and I don't know that I can necessarily describe um, what, what I feel has gone on more succinctly than what you've just put it, Iris. You know, what started with a protest about tea rooms that was an actual union protest. You know, CFMEU members taking to the streets with their lunch tables because there had been an increase of COVID cases related to building sites and the chief health officer had made the move to close tea rooms because this was an indoor part of building sites where people were congregating and therefore most likely to be spreading the virus because it, it it is unlikely that the virus gets spread when people are outdoors. Yeah, that was a valid union protest. What we saw happen 
with regards to the anti-lockdown and the anti-mandatory vaccination sort of protests that followed that and that smashed in the CFMEU offices, I think, you know, it was a bit of a mix. There is an overlap. I believe that some CFMEU members have been engaged in perhaps some right-wing discussions or, you know, a lot of people were talking about this stuff as if it was cut and dry. One was a bunch of unionists and that another wasn't. But I think that unionists have been engaged in some far-right spaces. I also think that because there was already protest momentum going on from the membership, that far-right actors and anti-lockdown actors and all of that have seized an opportunity and have used it as a way of building momentum against some of the state's more oppressive sort of COVID management strategies. And then, yeah, there were the police tactics. So unfortunately, I think that in some ways, certain sections of the centre-left have helped normalise some of this. So about a month ago now, we saw a massive anti-lockdown protest of about 5,000 people and police, special operations police were using assault weaponry against protesters such as pepper pellets and rubber bullets were also um, reported at one stage and had capsicum gas grenade launchers on them and we're using these things against protests and I saw some people who who claimed to be on the left but as I'd say with centre-left um, cheering on these sorts of policing tactics and I, I got incredibly concerned that these sorts of tactics, these sorts of actions of police violence against protesters would become normalised and and certainly over the over the activities that you just described, we saw these tactics used used on these groups of people again and again. And you know, considering that special ops turn up to every single race related protest in in the state, considering that they turn up to every anti fascist rally in the state, we can expect in the future that um, because people have failed to speak out about the increase of policing powers and weaponry and the acceptability of their use on citizens, that we're going to see these these same weapons discharged in these sorts of protests in the future. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a highly worrying situation because it's not just how the far right and fascists are trying to recruit and reframe the narrative, but it's like how Victoria Police is using this moment to normalise more extreme use of violence on protests more generally and how that's going to affect when the left like mobilises in a month as restrictions, I guess, unwind. And the COVID risk is probably going to be similar or even worse then. But... Sort of like moving back and thinking the last decade, and I've been thinking about the so-called Reclaim Australia rallies, where there was a regular smattering of white nationalism, you know, Australian flags, the anthem, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, eugenics, like thinking, and I'm also describing what I see in these protests as well, eugenics, like thinking that dismisses caring for those most at risk in a pandemic and a reactionary understanding of freedom 
which erases Australia as a settler colonial nation. Do you have any thoughts on the similarities and differences between the anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination protests and the Islamophobic Proclaim Australia protests of 2015 onwards? I, I think there's a continuum of activity. Um, and as you rightly put it, we have seen a fairly active far-right contingent in Melbourne. In fact, we, we can't deny there was recent media coverage on the National Socialist Network in Australia and how many of those actors had actually come from Melbourne or come from Victoria and had come from preceding sort of far-right groups such as Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front and so forth. So that presence has been there for a long time and part of the reason why I think it's been there is that Melbourne is known for its activism, that we are known for being um, a city that's comparatively tolerant of protest. I don't think that we are, but, but, you know, in fact, I think that the Andrews government has, over a series of years, actively stripped back the right to protest by anti-masking laws and by move-on laws and by increasing the weaponry of special ops police. But I think that the anti-lockdown movement has created a pretty fertile recruitment ground for far-right actors who see themselves as being anti-authority who see a group of people not necessarily getting the answers that they want or that they need from a government and feeling incredibly stressed and and isolated in a really difficult time. And we can't deny that six lockdowns has had a big impact on Melbournians. And so they've gone in and taken that opportunity and seized it. And I think that, you know, to a degree, we do need to look at some failings of the left I think that there's been some really good people on the left calling for more community-based responses and community um, support funding and education programs and activating, like, for example, translating health materials for groups of people who have English as a second or third language so that they can understand government directives better. But the Andrews government has, mainly seen the COVID pandemic response until recently as being an opportunity to police a crisis. And that's had some serious impacts. And I think that in those serious impacts, people are gone looking for answers in the wrong areas and an opportunity has been exploited by far-right actors in this city. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're hearing from Arenta woman Celeste Little, anti-fascist, unionist and writer, and Greens candidate. We're talking about the reactionary events in so-called Melbourne in mid to late September, as well as discussion about the state, the left and the pandemic. Before we pick up on the next part of the conversation, touching on policing in Victoria, we hear some of the sounds of riot police on the streets, including firing their so-called non-lethal weaponry. Thank 
noted in other places that the policing and the pandemic is like on a continuum on Andrew's government's expansion of policing and prisons in its tenure. And it's not like the Andrew's government is standing down its police forces to like 25% during the pandemic. They're still operating at 100% and even like worse than that in terms of what they're normalizing, I guess. Yeah, they're operating at more than 100%. And in fact, last year, Andrews announced part of the post-COVID regrowth strategy as far as jobs were concerned was that he was going to build more prisons and hire 300 more corrections officers. So there's a real commitment to policing in this state and to incarceration. And the assumption there is that if you're going to be building more prisons and if you're going to need more corrections officers, then you're going to need more people to chuck into prisons in order to make that viable. And so we get with COVID sort of management strategies that are based around policing rather than based around public health and community growth. And I think that's a really dangerous dynamic. And I think probably more dangerous is the fact that instead of questioning it, there have been sections of the centre-left, the soft-left, who have been more than willing to act as its cheerleaders. Yeah, it's very worrying in terms of how that sort of like quasi-nationalism, because of Victoria, it's not a nation, but this idea they have to reduce the range of like critical thinking of the state in the pandemic just because it's a crisis situation or something. Absolutely, and with no thought as to the impact that this will have on already heavily policed communities. Like, you know, Indigenous incarceration rates in the state are a disgrace. Um, we found out during last year's finding data that Aboriginal people and South Sudanese people were being represented in the data of COVID's directive non-adherent fines were being massively, um, massively overrepresented in those data sets. It's kind of like the nationalism that you talk well, the nationalism, you're right, um, Victoria is in its own country, but there has been an uptick of like Victorian nationalism that has gone on and the painting of a premier that is under siege by, by the media continually, um, which has allowed a space where it's become really, really difficult to criticise measures that the government takes which aren't necessarily based around social justice or good social policy. Yeah, at the moment there's a petition going around from a nurse asking for more pay considering the dangerous condition, uh, the unrelenting work condition. And there's also been the suspension of the program about housing houseless people in hotels that was only recently returned. So a lot of people like point to that that's a failure of the federal government, but it is, it's also on the Victorian state what's happening in terms of the abandonment of many communities and many workers at the moment. Yeah, and we also can't ignore the fact that whilst this is happening, mental health workers in Victoria have been taking industrial action because they're being paid less than other health professionals and there's a range of other issues that they've got, but the Andrews government has just committed more mental health workers. So to deal with the growing mental health epidemic in this state related to continual lockdowns. But who's going to staff those? 
are a bunch of underpaid, overstressed workers with not decent conditions going to be doing it? And how fair is that? Teachers are currently voting on industrial action. And yet teachers are often the first people um, back in the workplace because because the state wants teachers to be teaching kids in classrooms so that other people can return to their workplaces. I feel there's a number of social policy failures that have gone on throughout this. Yeah, for sure. Women on the line. Sorry, I did forget one one thing that you just said that has come back to me with regards to the homeless people and the fact that there was a program to house them in hotels last year and it went on for several months, you know, I think from March to about the end of October, beginning of November, and then people were turfed out, essentially back onto the streets or back into whatever sort of conditions that they could find. And now that's being set up again. The state government has a definite role to play in public housing. I have a real question as to why it is that, firstly, that the homeless people who were housed in hotels in that that long stretch of months weren't transferred into proper housing rather than just put back out on the streets and why it is that there hasn't been... um, a real push to develop a bunch of secure, low-cost housing for the people in this state who really need it in all this time. It's, it's distressing. Yeah, very distressing. Sort of going back to another point you raised recently on some things you're hardened by in terms of community translation where the state failed to translate all the pandemic information into languages other than English. What further solidarity and responses have you been hardened by recently or in a pandemic in general? I I think the the translation of materials jumps out at me because that happened during the tower lockdowns and the postcode lockdowns. And the fact that community actors from groups such as RISE got together and made that happen so that people who were locked in incredibly oppressive situations with cops standing right outside their doors had some sort of idea as to why it was happening. I think that the organising of food and grocery deliveries from various union groups and, again, from those sorts of asylum seeker activist groups and other hard-left community organisers getting in and doing something about it, I think that was heartening. The other big ones that I can think of is the virus has absolutely ripped its way through Wilcannia in in New South Wales. And this is a highly Aboriginal town which has just suffered so much um, from the water crisis a couple of years back to now being left high and dry by the government when it comes to providing adequate facility servicing in the area, but also getting vaccinations out to those sorts of communities. And people have raised a lot of money, set up food banks, gotten in supplies to to that area to ensure that people in Wilcannia at least have some sort of community response to help take care of them as they go through this incredible, incredibly awful struggle when the government has continually failed them. I think those sorts of things are heartening. I I do think that 
there's been such an opportunity to grow community and it it does hearten me to see activists getting out there and attempting to do that in an environment where I think that um, the onus has not been on growing community but on policing and demonising sections of community. Where to from here? So we've had this event and we're seeing, I guess, anti-mandatory vaccination sort of agenda now a wedge being used around vaccine passports and I guess there's critiques you can make from the left about vaccine passports like passports in general but where to from here in terms of what would you like to see in, in the next few months as a response to what's going on? I think that rather than mandating and rather than those sorts of continual forced approaches to to things like vaccination and infection spreading, I think that we need to start looking at positive education and ensuring communities are getting the right information, that the the information is accessible, that people are adequately supported to act on appropriate health information and that they are making the right decisions. Because I do think that COVID is a reality that we have to live with. And I think that We've probably known that for a long time, but, you know, now that we do have vaccinations, there is an onus on people to know that, know what the risks are, but also know what those risks are in comparison to what the risks of COVID and other sort of health challenges that we face every single day are and and make informed decisions after consulting medical professionals. So we need to fight the misinformation campaign that's out there um, circulating by conspiracy theory groups and far-right actors looking to recruit with positive real education to ensure that we are creating a herd immunity um, in this state, to ensure that we're looking after the most vulnerable in this state and to ensure that people feel empowered by their decision to vaccinate rather than disempowered because if they don't do it, they could lose their job or they could, you know, or this could happen or that could happen and they could end up further excluded from society than what they have been the past 18 months. I I also think too that, that the left needs to keep their eye on things. Andrews has escalated policing powers throughout the pandemic as a way of managing it. But Andrews was escalating policing powers prior to the pandemic. And we have to ensure that that the human right to protest, to assemble, to, to engage in activities, that those, those sorts of human rights still exist and that the powers that the police have been imbued with in a time of crisis are wound back so that so that they don't become permanent fixtures in in the horizon yeah it should not be normalized that they can turn up to rallies and fire a bunch of pepper pellets into the crowd yeah so i hope that fight is won quickly thanks so much for joining me on community radio celeste little no worries at all you just heard from a rente woman, Celeste Whittle, anti-fascist, unionist, writer and Greens candidate. We heard about the rise of reactionary mayhem in Melbourne to the failures of the left, to failures of the state's responses to the pandemic and where to next. 
She also touched on the dangers of policing their pandemic. Following that, I'm going to end with a media release from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services in August on this subject. The release, entitled The Andrews Government's Love Affair with Policing is Cheating Victoria Out of an Effective Pandemic Strategy, and I quote, The imposition of curfews this week raises the troubling prospect that the Andrews government has not learnt from the decision-making errors it made during the first year of the pandemic. It is distracting attention from vaccines and public health messaging and still thinks it can police its way out of the pandemic. The Andrews government has a long track record of making decisions on the fly with little regard to expert advice. We saw these poor decision-making processes exposed at the inquiry into hotel quarantine. VALS, that is Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, has continuously advocated for better public health measures and social supports as the only way to manage the COVID-19 pandemic. We have been vocal in warning the Andrews government about the destructive and harmful effects of trying to police the pandemic. Policing measures disproportionately affect already marginalised groups, especially Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people. We know from what little data has been made public that COVID fines have mostly been used to police low-income communities. A renewed fetishization of law enforcement stands to undermine hard-earned progress by the community. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have been tremendously successful in keeping themselves and the broader population safe from COVID transmission and are working hard to ensure high vaccination rates. The work of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to build community support for effective COVID strategies is undermined when police use COVID restrictions to target community members. Bells again calls on the Andrews government to ensure that the pandemic response is based on specific health advice. There must be a clear connection between the health advice and the restrictive measures to be imposed. Compliance with the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. The Andrews government should produce a document similar to the Statement of Compatibilities for any restrictions they intend to enact. The advice, analysis and reasoning that Andrews government relies on must be made publicly available. Dan Andrews still refuses to apologise to residents of the public housing in North Melbourne and Flemington that was shut down without warning, a decision that the Victorian Ombudsman found was not based in evidence. I'll end quoting from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service there. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send us an email at womenonthelion at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.